Hello, everybody. Good day. Good morning. Good evening to all of you, wherever you are. I hope you're doing very well. And welcome to the 91st live episode of Ask Abhijit. As you know, we are discussing the situation in Ukraine today. Before I begin, a very brief announcement. I have created a separate short clips channel. Here is the link to the channel. It's uh, youtube.com slash Abhijit Chavda clips. The link is also in the description below. So henceforth, going forward, all the short clips will be uploaded to that separate channel. So in case you want to uh, stay, uh, you know, in case you want to stay up to date, please subscribe to the short clips channel, right? Okay. So uh, as you know, today we are, uh, I am taking questions from uh, the comment that you have uh, that uh, that you have asked so let's let's get right into it let's begin with question number 1 okay this is by samarth what is the exact objective of the russian invasion is it to conquer the entire ukraine or just remove the pro west government or occupy eastern ukraine will china be economically controlling russia now after all the sanctions it seems like russia might fall into a dead trap and uh, so on is china the biggest threat now Right. A uh, good question. So the last live streams that I did was were, were one week ago, 26, 27 February. The Russian intervention in Ukraine began on the 24th of February. So the, the last live stream at that time, the things were the situation was very much fluid. We have far more clarity today. So what do we know about the Russian objectives? We know that the Russian uh, army, the Russian armed forces are proceeding very systematically. There is no hurry. They are not trying to rush into anything. They are proceeding very slowly, systematically. Not very slowly, but very systematically. So what seems to be the objective? The, the objective has never been explicitly announced. But what it looks like is... It looks like Mr. Putin wants to capture whatever territory he intends to capture as intact as possible as you as we know the internet is still working in ukraine right uh, all communication lines are open uh, electricity is available in most of the places there are uh, i mean the the invasion uh, forces are even obeying the traffic laws traffic rules and everything so it's a very uh, systematic invasion they are not trying to engage in any big battles they are not they're trying as far as possible to avoid civilian casualties. There are lots of videos circulating where people are coming face to face with Russian soldiers carrying Ukrainian flags and protesting. And the Russians are just looking at them. They're not, they're not doing anything. There's no violence, brutality and all that. So we can see that there is, very, uh, there is a very clear plan that they are following. So the objective of the invasion seems to be regime change. What seems to be the objective is they want to remove the uh, NATO puppet government that was installed uh, beginning in 2014. At that time, it was a different president. Today, we have uh, the the actor-comedian president, uh, Zelensky, right? So he is obviously a pro-NATO, pro-West pro person. So he most likely, uh, the intention is to remove him and to replace him with somebody else who is pro-Russia. So replace a pro-NATO puppet with a pro-Russia puppet. Well, that's how things work. And uh, the Donbass and uh, Donbass region will be most likely be annexed into Russia. That's one possibility. And the eastern part of Ukraine would uh, become more or less part of Russia. Possibly, uh, see, the thing is, 
if you look at Ukraine, there are lots of Russian-speaking people there. The only place where I believe there is a Ukrainian-speaking majority is the western one-third of the country. So maybe that may be left aside, possibly. So we still don't know exactly what the objectives are. What I can definitely tell you is that there is going to be regime change in Kiev. So the current government will be removed and a different uh, new new government, pro-Russia government, will be installed. And that's that seems to be the objective. So I don't know if the entirety of Ukraine will be conquered. That's not what's happening right now. They have very clear military objectives and they are moving with pinpoint precision. So definitely a regime change is going to happen. That's what I can tell you for sure. That's the amount of clarity we have as of today. Okay, the next bunch of questions is about... <clears throat> Uh, why is Russia dragging the process of war? Is there any uh, motive hidden behind this tactic? Anish says the war is being dragged down for dragged on for longer than expected by Mr. Putin. He must have anticipated Kiev to fall within two three days of the attack. If it is true, how do you think it will in, impact the conflict? Will Mr. Putin be more aggressive to get Kiev as soon as possible? And Rishikesh says if Russian defense forces are so powerful, why is it taking so much time for them to achieve their objectives? Okay, so this is the impression that the media is giving us. They are saying that the Russian invasion or the intervention has been bogged down. Uh, why, why is it that they have not, not been able to take Kiev and so on? And the comparison that we have is the various American invasions of various parts of the world. Uh, let's say the 2003 invasion of Iraq or the uh, invasion of Afghanistan or the invasion of Libya and so on and so forth, Yugoslavia, Kosovo, so, so many things. And typically when the Americans invade a country, they go shock and awe. So they, they begin with, an, with a massive aerial bombardment. All the videos are still available on YouTube, I'm sure, Baghdad, etc. They just flatten the place and then they move in because there is nothing left to, to resist them. So, and when they are moving in, if, they, if there is any resistance, of the, if there is anything in the way, they just annihilate that, right? Friend, foe, doesn't matter. Just wipe everything out, then move in, and then you establish peace and democracy in whatever uh, wasteland is left. So that is the American way of doing things. The Russians are not doing that. The Russians are not trying to flatten Ukraine. They're not trying to destroy the cities, right? They're not, where's the Russian Air Force? They're doing nothing with the Air Force. The Air Force is just there, some helicopters here and there, one or two aircraft once in a while. But you don't see any major involvement of the Air Force. And yet we know that in the first two, three hours, the Russians had achieved complete air supremacy over Ukraine. Whatever the media is telling you doesn't matter. Because if you see, there are so many long, 40-mile long columns of Russian vehicles going towards Kiev. If the Ukrainian Air Force was still active, how come there is nothing being, uh, they, they are not able to target? the convoys of the Russians, it proves that the Ukrainian Air Force has been neutralized completely. The Russians have complete air supremacy and they are choosing not to use their air force because they don't want to, well, they don't want to do bombardment the way the Americans do. So that's what we know. Now, if you want to look at the, uh, let me, let me show you some uh, images. One second. So we will know how, how it's working. So this, yeah, this is a map of the invasion on the second day. Okay, the second day uh, after the invasion, this is how it was. So the yellow territories are the, the red one is Donetsk and Luhansk, which the Russians already controlled to some extent. The yellow territories are the ones that the Russians wanted to advance into and there were there was some military action going on in these areas. So this is on day two. This is day four. The red territories are the ones the Russians had already taken control of, right? 
So you can see over here, there is this encircling happening. The blue areas are where the U Ukrainian armed forces are present and they are trying to encircle them, the Russians, right? So this is day four. This is, uh, I think, a day or so before today. So you can see there is significant progress happening. So in just 10 days, they have achieved this much progress. This is faster than the American invasion of, of, U of, uh, sorry, of Iraq. And it is faster than the German blitzkrieg into France in the Second World War. So it may look like a slow, steady thing. It's not slow at all. It is moving at very good pace. The way the media portrays it will be a, like a, like nothing is happening. Uh, the, the media commentators, especially the Western media, they're saying that the invasion is going to fail and Mr. Putin is going to be ousted because this is a disaster and so on and so forth. But look at the progress you're seeing on the maps. There are two ways of looking at things. You see, there are two ways of looking at things. One thing is to look at social media, look at all the propaganda that's, that's cropping up, uh, videos, from they will show some destroyed russian vehicles here or 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 some uh, helicopter that's been shot down there so you get all these uh, different data points there is one way of looking at it that is the bottom up approach of examining uh, a military campaign there is a different approach called the top down approach in which you look at maps you look at the big picture and i just showed you the big picture that is the correct way of looking at the progress of a military campaign and you can see the steady uh, steady increase in the territory that the Russians are controlling. And also, you can see a very clear purpose in what they're trying to achieve. They're trying to encircle the Ukrainian armed forces, and then they will hopefully make them surrender. I hope so. And they want to take Kiev, but they're not They're not going into Kiev. They are also surrounding Kiev, and then they'll, they will wait. So it's a very systematic way of doing things. So there is no dragging that's happening. It's doing it's it's happening very systematically, step by step, and they are trying their best not to cause any civilian casualties or or any avoidable damage as far as possible to civilian infrastructure and all that. That's what they are trying to do. This is a war. In war, once you st set things in motion, you can't control everything. But they are trying their best not to cause any unnecessary destruction. Okay, Ashish says, my question is that has Putin underestimated the defense power of Ukraine or is there, is there a bigger plan? Like we have only seen phase one, the bigger strike is yet, to, is yet the bigger strike is yet to come. So Mr. Putin has not underestimated the defense power of Ukraine. Where is the defense? Uh, the Ukrainian armed forces are not, <laughs> I mean, what are they doing? Is Have you seen a single proper battle between two armies, two armed forces? Have you seen any artillery battle, any air force battle? Have you seen any of that or any missile battle which in which you see uh, equal amounts of firepower from both sides? You don't see any of that. Where are, where are the Ukrainian armed forces? Right. They have been subdued. They are essentially hiding and they may hopefully surrender. I mean, the Russians are have way outmatched the Ukrainians. And as you can see, the Ukrainian Air Force is not to be seen anywhere. I think within the first three hours or so, the, new, the Russians had neutralized the Ukrainian Air Force uh, with these uh, very targeted pinpoint uh, cruise missile strikes at various airports and various uh, radars and uh, things such as that, military installations. So I think that Mr. Putin has not underestimated anything. You don't plan for a long time and then end up underestimating something. So this is, so what you, what we are seeing is tactics and strategies that 
harken back to the USSR days. The Soviet army used to use similar tactics. For instance, if you look at the uh, if you look at the picture, if you look at this map here, then you will see in this region. Uh, if you can see my mouse pointer, you can see there is this blue region here, where is the, where the Ukrainian armed forces are uh, entrenched, and they are being encircled by the Russian army. So this strategy is called the cauldron strategy. They are encircling the opponent, creating a cauldron, a closed cauldron, and then they can do as they wish with them. This is a very ancient strategy. It, it, the Soviets used it, the USSR used it, but even the Mongols used it. Chinggis Khan, the great conqueror, used the same so the similar tactics and strategies. Even while hunting, the Mongols would do that. You know, They would encircle a, a, a piece of woods or forest, and then they would uh, trap a number of animals in there, and then they would hunt them uh, as they wished. So this is a very old strategy, and that's what the uh, Russian armed forces are, are using today. And uh, so, so what we see is that there is no question of any underestimation or the media will portray things in a way in, in, a, in a variety of ways if we look at social media then one could conclude or one could uh, say that ukraine is winning the war on social media but on the ground there's a whole different reality which we are seeing through the maps so that's just what it is it's, that's just how it how the campaign is progressing sapna says <laughs> this video did not age well. A lot of civilians have lost their lives. And Nitin said, you said there will be no harm to civilians, but people are dying, including Indians. What's your take on this? Okay. So last week I had said, when on, on day two or day three of the, of the intervention, I had said that the Russians will try their best not to target civilians. They will try not to harm any civilians. That's what I said. And now people have interpreted that as me having said that not a single civilian will die. That's not what I said. In a military conflict, even if you try your best not to cause any civilian casualties, when the opposition is arming civilians, when they are placing hostages as human shields in military installations, you're going to have loss of life. I never said not a single civilian will die. That's impossible in a conflict. I said the Russians will try their best to minimize civilian casualties. They will not go and target civilians. They will only target military installations. And that is precisely what we have seen over the past 10 days. They are doing pinpoint strikes. They are targeting only military installations. They are not targeting civilians. Lots of videos are there when civilians are confronting the Russian, Russian soldiers who are carrying weapons. And the Russians are being very patient and very restrained. Right? So they are not targeting civilians. Yes, civilians will die if the Ukrainians place civilians as human shields inside military installations. We know that's happening. And if a civilian goes for a walk when there's an artillery barrage happening, that civilian will die if they're, they're that stupid. Right? So casualties happen in war. If you compare the number of casualties that you, that you saw in the American invasion of Iraq, first 10 days, and this particular Russian military campaign, the difference in civilian casualties will be shockingly different. There are very few civilian casualties in this campaign compared to what the Americans did in Iraq or in Afghanistan or in uh, Libya or anywhere else in the last 20, 30, 50, 100 years. So that's what I meant and that is precisely what's happening. And I never said there will be no harm to civilians. I said the Russians will try to minimize civilian casualties. They will do their best not to 
hurt any civilian. But this is war, man. Some people unfortunately will die. That is the sad thing about about wars. Some people start the war, and the people who end up suffering the most are the innocent civilians. That's what happens always in wars. So the Russians are trying their best not to do that because they do not see the Ukrainians as a separate people, as a foreign nation. The Ukrainians are the same as the Russian people. They are Slavic people and so on. I've, I've gone into the history in the past. So that's the reason why the Russians are trying their best to minimize civilian casualties and uh, damage to civilian infrastructure. Okay. Nobody gonna talk about Naveen who got direct shot from the Russian army, according to whatever. Dungar Singh Chauhan said, you said the Russians will never kill any country citizens, but our student is de dead in the shelling of the Russian army. And Ajay says, an Indian is already killed. You were saying in your videos that Russian military have no intention of harming civilians. Okay, so this is along the same themes as what I what the previous question I took. I never <laughs> said... So there are two questions being asked over here. There's a specific question and a more general question. Okay, about Naveen. So we had this Indian student, very unfortunate, very tragic. Naveen Shekharappa, I think his name was. Uh, the death was announced on 1st of March, I believe. So he died in the city of Kharkiv. And initially it was believed that he, was, he died in shelling. But later it emerged through video evidence that he was shot. Somebody shot him. All right. Now... When Naveen was shot in Kharkiv, the Russians were not in Kharkiv. The Russians were, were outside Kharkiv, far away, many, many kilometers away. There was not a single Russian soldier in Kharkiv. And yet Naveen was shot to death. Now we know that in Kharkiv, the Ukrainians had been arming civilians. The Ukrainian government had issued AK-47 and other weapons to civilians. They had also freed criminals and given them weapons. Now, what can you can you put two and two together to understand what happened to our guy Naveen? The poor guy was in a in a bunker in a bomb shelter all night. Then once the curfew was lifted for a few hours, he went out to get some provisions, some food and water, I, I suppose. And then we find that he has been shot. And there was not a single Russian in the city. Who is to be held responsible for this? The Russians? Come on. He was shot clearly, not by a Russian. So who else can it be? Somebody on the Ukrainian side. Either a civilian who had been given weapons or a criminal who was released by the, by the Ukrainian government. That's all I can say. Right. Now, I did say the Russians will never willingly or knowingly hurt an Indian citizen, they will do their best to evacuate the Indian citizens. That's what I said. But this is war. I also said the Russians will try their best not to hurt civilians. But this is war. Bullets don't look at your nationality. Right. An artillery shell follows the laws of physics. It is not a magic shell that will see, oh, this person is not Ukrainian or this person is not a, not a soldier, so don't, don't hurt the person. No. That's not how it works. So when war happens, when there is shelling going on, sometimes civilians will get hit, especially if the Ukrainian government is putting them as human shields, which they have been doing. And sometimes the shells will go in the wrong direction. Sometimes there will be crossfire, which will be uncontrolled when two sides are firing at each other. If civilians are caught in the crossfire, they will die. So please understand people, use some logic. Please use some logic. Please use some common sense. Hmm? 
I have never said not a single civilian will die. I said the Russians will try their best to minimize civilian casualties. They will try their best to minimize damage to Ukrainian infrastructure. And they will never, ever willingly hurt an Indian citizen. Okay. But if an Indian citizen gets caught in some crossfire, that in that case, we will have a tragic loss of life. I hope it doesn't happen. Please, I, I, I wish and I hope it doesn't happen. And so far, the, the Indian government is doing a very good job of evacuating the citizens. I hope it is concluded successfully. But this is war. So you you may have casualties. I hope it doesn't happen, but that's how it goes. So I hope that clarifies what I said. And I hope that people will use a little bit more common sense while, while understanding things. Okay, Swastika says... Russia is claiming that Ukraine has taken Indian students as hostages and using them as human shields. Uh, you can see blatant racism happening in Ukraine. Uh, MEA rejected both claims. What do you think is actually happening? How can India save its students? Harsh says, am I biased for thinking Ukraine did absolutely nothing to stop the war and all that? Mm. They are threatening India holding its students hostage. I don't see and, and so on. Right. So last week, I had shown the video of the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations speaking directly to the Indian ambassador and, and issuing a veiled threat to the Indian students who were in Ukraine. And I have got a lot of flack for that. People are saying, you have misinterpreted the words because he did not say clearly that we are threatening students. Obviously, he's a diplomat. He will use diplomatic language, especially when he's making a public threat. He will use language that can be interpreted in a multiple number of ways. But the threat was unmistakable. And whatever he threatened us with, they have actually done it. We know that they have, they have been preventing Indian students from leaving various cities, not allowing Indian students to board trains. Also, non-Indian foreigners, like Africans especially, they have been extremely racist. And it's not one or two instances. It's a pattern. It's a big pattern of racism against Indians, against Africans, and again, even against the Greek people, some, some Greek students, I believe. That's what I heard yesterday or today, that even Greeks were being subjected to racism. So Greek people, as you know, are not exactly white. They are kind of brown, light brown. So there is racism there also. And we know that Indians have been kept in various cities against their will. So that is called using people as human shields, right? So that is precisely what this individual, this thug, the Ukrainian ambassador threatened India with. And that's precisely what's, what's happened. So I said this on day two or day three of the war, right? And today, what I said has been, has been uh, we, we have seen it in action. That's what they did. So they have been using Indian students as hostages. They have been in, using Indian students as human shields, right? And uh, racism also, as we know, it's happening. So that's what the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians have done. Even the BBC, which is so blatantly and so consistently anti-India, even the BBC has been forced to report about this. About the racism that uh, Indians are facing. Indian students are being, beat, are being beaten up by Ukrainians, by Ukrainian police. Even girls are being beaten up by Ukrainian police. We are, our students are not being allowed to board, uh, are not being uh, allowed to get on trains, on buses. So what else do you see except for what I had said that they, they are doing? They are using Indians as hostages and human shields. 
that's precisely what we have seen and uh, by now i hope that most of the indians must have been evacuated the russians are also uh, getting involved now because they are controlling large parts of the country so uh, i think a couple of days ago about 48 hours ago they stopped the war for about 6 hours and allowed indians to be evacuated now the mea india's ministry of external affairs is is still trying to keep the situation calm it is uh, saying we don't know anything about human shields and hostages that's what you say when your people are held as hostages you will try your best not to antagonize the hostage takers you will say no no kuch nahi ho raha hai everything is fine they are very civilized you will say that until you get your people out right so our people our students are still in ukraine i think it uh, out of the 20000 approximately students at least 18000 have been evacuated but around 2000 may still be uh, there uh, i don't know what is the situation right now as we speak i hope more have been evacuated but as long as even one student or one citizen is there on ukrainian soil the mea will try to keep things very uh, very conciliatory and not try to and try their best not to offend the ukrainians because the lives of our citizens are at stake once everything is over we will issue whatever statement which whichever factual statement we need to issue okay rahul says the unbiased news channels keep blaming russia for their unprovoked attack on a sovereign nation and that nothing can justify this do putin's actions violate the budapest memorandum that they would respect the sovereignty of ukraine and does it mean that treaties and agreements amount to nothing in today's world and quinn reverence says indians are in no place to criticize sensible and restrained us foreign policy i love that sensible and restrained us foreign policy if the us got militarily involved in in europe it would start a world war then you'd be calling the us an aggressor and escalator if the us does nothing then you will scold it on your high horse if the us did anything more you would scold it again and so on and so forth so india until india has a clear position sit down this is what this most likely american gentleman is saying sensible and restrained foreign policy okay first of all when it comes to treaties and agreements remember the iranians and the americans etc and some other countries that they had the iran nuclear deal an agreement that was signed and ratified and the americans just just walked away from it right they they tore the treaty into pieces so whenever they want they can tear a treaty into pieces they can tear it to shreds they can walk away from a treaty unilaterally so then what is the meaning of a treaty in today's world zero right the chinese had this treaty with the uh, with the uk that they would have one country two systems with hong, with respect to hong kong they walked away from the treaty unilaterally so it's this is how it works when you are strong you can do whatever you like you can set the rules you can break the rules when you are weak you have to follow the rules you have to obey the rules which are set by the strong the strong powers will keep changing the rules whenever they wish as they wish to suit themselves and the weak countries have to keep following the rules even when the rules keep changing that is the way geopolitics works works that's the way the world works so treaties and agreements actually mean nothing the strong countries can change the set of rules any time they want they can break a treaty any time they wish right now um, they they have been saying that the russian attack the russian intervention in ukraine has been an unprovoked attack right so let's let's understand do we have a map somewhere let let's take a look at the map yeah it's always nice to see the map 
So let me share the map with you in order to explain what is happening. Where's the map? Where's the map? Here's the map. Let me remove the question and uh, let's take a look at the map. So this is the map. Now let's take a look at Europe. So there is this organization or coalition or whatever you want to call it called NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is essentially led by the US, right? And uh, in 1990, until 1990, NATO had 16 members, mostly uh, nations that are in Western Europe. Okay, Western Europe, UK, France, Germany, and so on and so forth. These were members of NATO. The objective of NATO was to counterbalance the USSR. So it was an anti-USSR military alliance. That's what NATO was. In Until 1990, NATO had 16 members. In February 1990, the then USSR facilitated the reunification of East and West Germany in exchange for an American guarantee that NATO would not expand even one inch eastward. Okay, so this guarantee was issued to the USSR by the Americans in February 1990. And the German reunification happened, the USSR broke up, and the, the successor state was Russia, to whom the guarantee still applied. In 1999, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech, Czech Republic became members of NATO. So the promise was broken. The guarantee was broken. In 2004, another bunch of countries, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, this entire bunch of countries became part of NATO. Again, the promise was broken. In 2009, Albania and Croatia became members of NATO. In 2017, Montenegro and North Macedonia became members of NATO. And now we have countries like Bosnia, Herzegovina, Georgia, Ukraine, that have been promised NATO membership. Ukraine especially becomes a very big problem because it is right on the doorstep of Russia, right, and other countries too. So what it essentially means is that you will have US nuclear weapons on Russia's doorstep. Now imagine if Russia were to place Russian nuclear weapons in Canada and in Mexico on American borders, on the American border, or in Cuba, which happened in the 1960s. How would the Americans react violently? But it's okay for them to do it on the Russian uh, threshold to, to essentially encircle Russia. So these are deliberate, st repeated provocations by NATO, by the US. And eventually it became too much for Russia to ignore because that, that would essentially put them at enormous threat. Right. So, so Mr. Putin, in the initial days of his tenure as the president of, the, of, of Russia, he had even considered applying for NATO membership. It did not work out, and you can see what has been the consequences of, 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 of subsequent developments. Right. So when you talk about uh, what, what was the term this, this gentleman used? The sensible and restrained foreign policy. Are you kidding? Sensible and restrained foreign policy? Are you kidding? Who are you kidding? This is incredibly provocative foreign policy. Right. That the and and when you talk about restraint and all that, where was the restraint in Baghdad? Where was the restraint in Iraq? How many people died as a result of the U.S. invasion of Iraq? At least two million. How many innocent Afghans died? At least a hundred thousand, I would say. I don't know have the exact numbers. Uh, you can look it up, but uh, very large numbers. How many innocent civilians died in Libya? At least. 
10,000 minimum. So you call this sensible and restrained foreign policy? Who are you guys kidding? Right. So that's what I can say. That's what I can, that's the information that is available everywhere. This is well known. I mean, there's no controversy here. These are just facts. So, so it all depends on when you start your clock. See, the way you look at history depends on how, on what time period, what slice of time you're looking at. If you start your clock in, uh, in late February 2022, then it looks like the Russians have suddenly launched an unprovoked attack on Ukraine. Right? That's how it looks. But then if you look, if you go back to 2014, then you will see that the Americans have effected an illegal unconstitutional regime change in Ukraine and installed a puppet government. So if you look at the, if you start the clock in 2014, that's what you see. If you start the clock in 1991 or 1990, when the Americans gave a guarantee that they would not expand NATO and then it was broken repeatedly, then you will see a whole different picture. And if you go back further in time, and I've, I've spoken about the history of the of the, of the the Slavic people and the Russian people, you will see that Ukraine is, is an artificial nation. There is, it, it has never, it's, it's always been Russian territory throughout history, throughout the past 1000 years, since the beginning of the, the, the history of the Kievan Rus people, right? With Prince Rurik, Prince Oleg, Prince Volodymyr, and so on and so forth. So, in the previous one of the previous live streams, I've given, uh, I've gone into the details of this history. If you can look and look, you can look it up. So, if you want to have a very narrow, myopic view of history, then you will it will look like Russians have launched an unprovoked attack on Ukraine. But if you look at the proper context, you will understand that there are reasons why this happened. The Russians were backed into a corner and they were given no choice at the end. When all the options ran out, they had to do this. So that's what the facts tell us. Okay, next question. Uh, Sultan Verma says, as you said, the war was necessary for Russia. I had a debate on this with my elder brother. He was saying if Russia had kept the army at the border, the pressure would be the same on Ukraine. Uh, what would be the other scenario if the Russians kept their army at the border? And the other question is, how will Putin justify to Russia the invasion was inevitable? Uh, Putin is solely blamed as if it was his madness to invade Ukraine. Uh, was war the only solution? Okay, so let's say, the, so the first question is, what if the Russians had only kept the war, the, the army at the borders? Then, then would all the problems be resolved? No. Then Ukraine would have a legitimate reason for joining NATO. And the Americans would have sent troops and maybe further provocations would have ensued. And the regime would not have changed in Ukraine. The regime that was illegally, illegitimately, unconstitutionally put in place in 2014 in the NATO-led coup would have stayed in place. And therefore, the objective, which is regime change, would never have been achieved. It's still not achieved as of, as of today, 10 days into the intervention. But I suppose it will happen in the next 10 days or so. So, so yes, so going to war was necessary in order to effect the regime change and, and in order to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Without the military intervention, those things would not have happened. It's still a work in progress. But yes, so the war was necessary. Just keeping the army on the borders of Ukraine would not have solved these problems that Mr. Putin seeks to resolve. Right. Uh, 
So the regime change would not have happened. Ukraine would not have been demilitarized, and Ukraine would certainly not have been denazified. So those three objectives could never have been achieved by keeping the Russian army on the borders of Ukraine. It needed a proper military intervention. Uh, now the other question is: uh, Was war the only solution? How will Putin justify to the Russians that the in- invasion was inev- inevitable? I just laid out the entire history of the of of the of the matter. The Russians were given a guarantee by the Americans in February 1990 that NATO would not expand a single inch eastward, and they have broken that guarantee repeatedly. 1999, 2004, 2009, 2017, and then into in 2021, 22 again the provocations continued. Ukraine could have become a member of NATO. Bosnia Herzegovina and Georgia also. These are incredibly grave provocations. They are encircling Russia. This is um. This essentially is is a matter of life and death for Russia for, at this point. So the invasion, the the military intervention, can be justified, can be clearly justified if you put it into the right context in in the in the in the context of the never-ending eastward expansion of NATO in breach of the guarantee that the Russians were given. So that justifies what Mr. Putin has done. That's the Russian view. Uh, Devansh says, "Why 90% of the Western media is showing that Putin is doing what? What Putin is doing is completely wrong. They are portraying him as a sinister villain. People in Russia are also protesting, even though it's their own national interest. See, there is there is a whole propaganda war that is fought in addition to the war that's fought on the ground, and the propaganda war is fought on social media." with the various uh, establishment mainstream media outlets washington post new york times the the british bbc the guardian and uh, all the various nato member countries whatever outlets they have whether it is uh, german outlets or french outlets or whatever so there's this whole propaganda war that is fought to keep up the morale of the people and to make them feel that the that they're uh, that the ukrainians are winning or whatever and in order to justify the sanctions you are imposing on the on on russia and whatever future actions you want to take against russia you have to portray them as evil as villains and you have to portray their leader mr putin as a crazy madman he's gone mad he's gone completely mad they are they are comparing him with adolf hitler these days right they are even com- comparing him with chinggis khan they are saying the, the, that he's asian now he is so bad that he's not even european anymore he's asian so it's all about demonizing somebody when you demonize somebody it makes it very easy for you to uh to do any kind of further action that you want against them so if you want to brutalize a country you have to first demonize it if you want to oppress a certain class of people you have to first demonize them that is classic marxist strategy it is textbook marxist strategy right collective guilt so that's a whole different story but that's the reason why it is being done so they are portraying mr putin as a, a hitler like person or a chinggis khan like person as as a crazy madman he's gone mad he's completely unrestrained he's lost his marbles that's what they're doing so that is the justi- that is going to lay the groundwork for and the justification for any action they take in the future that's what is happening Chiching says we can see that most of the civilians of Ukraine old and young are joining the military to stop to stop the russian troops is this a sign that the, that russia may may lose the war so you are right chiching the uh, the 
I would not say all of them or most of them are joining the the war effort, but the Ukrainian government has released lots of prisoners, criminals, and given them weapons. They are also issuing AK-47s and various other rifles, automatic rifles, machine guns, Molotov cocktails, bombs, etc., to civilians. Right? So they are doing that too. Now, un- let's understand what this means. The job of defending the country is that of the professional armed forces. It is their job to do it. Now, when you are forced to start arming your civilians, what does it mean? It means that your professional armed forces are no longer able to do their job of defending the country. And therefore, civilians need to be enlisted. So it actually is an act of utter desperation if you are forced to start arming the civilians. It means that you are losing the war. It doesn't mean the Russians are losing the war. It means the Ukrainians are desperate. They they may lose the war. And the other reason why they are arming civilians, it's a very cynical thing to do, is to to have more civilian casualties. See, if you if the Russians the Russians have been instructed not to deliberately harm any civilians, and we are seeing the evidence of that on, on lots of video clips that are circulating. They are not harming civilians in the face of all kinds of protests and provocations. But imagine the Russian soldiers come face to face with a person who is holding a gun. In that case, they have to treat that person as an enemy combatant. They have no other option. When you come across, when a soldier, when a professionally trained soldier comes face to face with a person holding a weapon, they are compelled to treat that person as an enemy combatant. And then what will happen is you will have civilian casualties. And that is great for media propaganda. The Russians are killing civilians. There are so many civilians who died. So that is a very cynical and sinister and diabolical thing to do to arm civilians who have no training in using weapons. You can't learn how to use an AK-47 with half an hour or two days of training. You need a proper training course that, that lasts weeks. Okay, weapon, these weapons are extremely dangerous things. They, you can hurt yourself, you can hurt your, you, the civilian population if you don't know how to use it. And you can't learn how to use it in half an hour or even two days. So, so that's what's happening. So if civilians are joining the war effort, it means that the Ukrainians are desperate and they are losing and they are trying to create unnecessary civilian casualties in order to win the propaganda war. Ahan says, do you think Vladimir Putin will make Viktor Yanukovych as the new president of Ukraine? And also why has, apart from Russia, not a single country criticized the genocide in Donbass? So, uh, it doesn't matter who is installed as the new president of Ukraine. It will be somebody who will be favorably disposed towards Russia. It could be Mr. Yanukovych or some other puppet president. There's no other way of looking at it. It's going to be a puppet. It's going to be a person who will report, who will be absolutely 100% loyal to Mr. Putin. That's just how it goes. That is the brutal truth of geopolitics. Right? You install puppet governments. So the other, uh, other, other question is, apart from Russia, why has nobody criticized the genocide in Donbass? That has not been reported at all. There has been a war going on in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine since 2014. And there have been all kinds of atrocities that have been perpetrated on the Russian-speaking people of this region by various Ukrainian armed militias, various, whether it's the regular armed forces or the various uh, neo-Nazi militias. 
And yeah, you could consider it to be genocide, definitely. And the West has deliberately ignored that. The West has a track record of selectively reporting things and selectively ignoring certain things. We know what's been happening in Tibet since the 1950s. A proper genocide. Does the West ever talk about it? They talk about the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs are very convenient these days as a stick to beat China with. But why has the West never spoken about Tibet? Because it doesn't want to. Why does the West not speak about the genocide that's happening in Yemen right now? Who is doing it, by the way? Find out. There's a genocide happening in Yemen. Right now, civilians are being bombarded from the skies. And they don't speak about it. Most of you may not even know about the fact that this is happening right now, as we speak. Right. And similarly, the genocide in Donbas has never been reported upon. Nobody even knows that it happened. So this is the true face of the Western media. The mainstream media, even the Indian media, by the way. All right. So there are certain Indian news channels that are, these days, they are reporting the Ukraine uh, war 24 by 7. Right. There are two or three channels that are doing that. Unfortunately, I will not take names of the, cha- the names of the channels, but the reporting is from a Western perspective. It's not from the Indian perspective. It is completely biased towards the NATO perspective. So we don't have an Indian perspective at all in the Indian media. They are simply puppets of the West. That's what we are seeing. Some of these media channels, I am told, are trying to tone down that that very visible tilt towards the West and try to be a little bit more balanced. But it's, it's not really working. So that's what you see, right? So that's that's the truth about the media. They will report, their, their reporting is biased, it is selective, and they omit whatever is not convenient. Uh, Herschel says, Mr. Putin has already ordered to activate the nuclear command. If it really happens, then how will the world react and so on? And reports came out that, they, that Russia already used a vacuum bomb, which is a violation of the Geneva Convention. Again, these so-called reports come out in on social media in various uh, Western media outlets. What is the evidence that the Russians used a vacuum bomb? It's it's called a thermobaric bomb, by the way. Okay, so uh, what's the evidence the Russians have used this for this sort of weapon? There's no evidence beyond the claims, the empty claims made by various propaganda propaganda outlets. There is no verifiable evidence that this sort of weapon has been used which is a violation of whatever convention, Geneva Convention or whatever, right? So there's no evidence. It's just wild claims that they are making to further demonize the Russians. Uh, they also made claims of the Russians using cluster bombs, cluster weapons, which uh, again has is completely unproven. Now the Americans, the NATO people, the NATO armed forces used cluster bombs, cluster munitions during their genocide or let's call it intervention or liberation of Yugoslavia in Albania, in Kosovo. Civilians, lots and lots of civilians died in that. Lots of people lost limbs in that. Where, where, What happened to the Geneva Convention there? Or maybe at that time, cluster, weapon, cluster munitions were not part of the Geneva Convention. I'm not really sure what exactly it is, but we know for a fact there is documentary evidence, horrific images. I will not share them here. But it's known. They use cluster weapons, cluster munitions in on civilians. So when they do it, it's fine. When Russians do it, even though we don't have any evidence they've done it, then it's bad. So the same things they have done, 
do you want to accuse the 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 russians of doing it and then demonize them look at the hypocrisy right uh, as far as the nuclear command goes mr putin has ordered them to be on high alert which is just a way of telling the west stay away he uh, obviously nobody wants to use nuclear weapons unless there is no uh, unless the, the, you have you have run out of options well the russians have not by any means run out of any options it's just a way of of uh, telling the us and nato stay back we are serious we're not messing around here that's all it is uh priyanka says while russia continues attacking ukraine destroying cities one by one lots of people lots of countries around the world are putting sanctions against it and uh, various companies are terminating businesses with them how long could it take for either country to give up okay priyanka i would i'm wondering which city has been destroyed see see the thing is this even in the indian media they will have this i remember during the uh, so called anti caa protests there was this one uh, one protest that was going on like 15 people were protesting with some placards and banners and there these drums and they were doing playing the drums and all that so 15 people are protesting and there are 50 cameras around them and they are portraying this as a national nationwide protest they manufactured this this entire narrative in this manner 15 20 people protesting somewhere and 50 cameras around them and all the media channels are reporting it 24 by 7 as if some huge protest is happening throughout the country these were all artificial astroturfed protests but they were portrayed as nationwide spontaneous protests now once again in ukraine we are seeing these various reports various clips on the internet on social media of this building destroyed here and that building destroyed there and some some city block that is damaged and all that and these selective clips are being used to portray uh, to 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 create the impression that the that the, that the russians are destroying entire cities that is simply not the case the russians are doing their best not to damage any civilian infrastructure the electricity is still running everywhere the internet is still running everywhere all telecommunications are are working fine buses are plying trains are running so there is no i mean it's a complete lie that the russians are destroying cities one by one not a single city has been destroyed yeah there have been some there has been some damage to some buildings they have taken out certain buildings with uh, targeted strikes such as one of the buildings in which the azov neo nazi division had their headquarters that was taken out and in case the ukrainians are shelling the russians from within an apartment complex they will have to retaliate right so so some damage will happen but they are by no means destroying cities one by one that's simply not the case but that's the impression they are trying to create on social media and in the mainstream media so these are just lies it's, it's just propaganda it is designed to turn people's opinion against russia and in favor of nato that's just the propaganda war that we are witnessing and it's very easy to mislead people by with this now the sanctions and all that various companies terminating business how long will it take for either country to give up the russia the ukrainians see i see i foresee the military objectives of the russian intervention being met within the next 10 days that's what i foresee so today is the 5th of march i foresee i believe that by the 15th of march 
most of the military objectives of the in- Russian intervention in Ukraine will be achieved. That's what I think. I know it's a fool's errand to make predictions, but let me just put a prediction out there. I know how it feels. I, 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 I know. I have experienced this myself firsthand that I make a prediction and then I look foolish. But here, let me let me go again. So I think in the next ten days, the military objectives will be achieved. Now the sanctions have been put on Russia. We know that they have dumped every possible sanction on Russia. They have essentially given Russia nothing more to lose. That's what what they've done, right? So they have essentially told Putin that no matter, I mean, you can now go and conquer Poland if you want, and the, there's no more sanctions we can throw on you because we've already thrown everything at you, the entire kitchen sink. And Russia is not going to give up because of the sanctions. Mr. Putin has been planning this, I believe, since for at least 10 years, right? So it was not done 10 years ago because the, 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 right, the, the right pieces on the chessboard were not in place. So the planning an invasion like this, an, an operation like this, takes time. It has to be done meticulously. So I believe the planning has been in, uh, has been in process progress for at least ten years. So all of these steps that the Western nations have taken, that the U.S. has taken essentially, have been foreseen. All of these calculations would have been, all of these things would have been calculated and taken into account when looking at the pros and cons of uh, of launching an operation like this. So there is no surprise that Mr. Putin has faced. He would have known that all these sanctions would be placed on Russia. The SWIFT thing would be cut off and whatever else. So he has anticipated this. He's prepared for it. And there's a bigger, a bigger reconfiguration of the world order that is in process right now. Uh, uh, how should Russia counter the fake news and one-sided reporting favoring Ukraine? The social media popular news channels are largely under the influence of NATO countries, especially the US. Failure to do so may lead to massive civil protests and so on and so forth. So how should Russia counter the fake news? The Russians are already countering the fake news. They have banned Facebook. <laughs> they have banned. They, they have blocked access to Facebook in Russia. And they may go ahead and do the same with other social media channels, outlets as well. Instagram, Twitter, whatever else, right? So they can do it. The Chinese have their own firewall, the great firewall of China. And they don't allow any, any U.S social media to inf- to make its way into china we know that the chinese citizens use vpn to to bypass these restrictions and the chinese government kind of tolerates it to some extent but they could also crack down on such such violations so the russians have banned facebook they may soon ban bbc cnn all that all of those uh, media networks as well so these are some of the ways in which the russians can do it and the thing is that the russian citizens are not that that easy to mislead. <laughs> okay, this is interesting. So the question is, uh, what Anurag says, what impact of this war will be on India? We saw many Western diplomats are unhappy with the Indian decision to abstain from voting at the UN Security Council. Tejas says, why did no one condemn US and NATO for abandoning Ukraine, but everybody is showing their discomfort and displeasure at India, not supporting Ukraine. When did we become so important for them? And Anonymous says, what will be the consequences for India after this war as the West is pissed off with us? And how should we prepare for it? Very good questions. 
So the question is, why is the West suddenly blaming India? And what are the consequences? What is going to be the impact of all of this on India? Very good question. Let me uh, share my screen. And uh, one second. So let's let's take a look at what the uh, what the chatter is on social media. So so various uh, commentators, diplomats, uh, think tank experts, analysts, etc., from the West are chattering on social media and putting out this message about India. So this is a guy called Robert Shrimsley. He's saying India's abstention is a useful wake-up call to those in the West talking it up as part of the alliance of democratic countries they want to build. So he is saying India is not a democratic country. It's a wake-up call for the West. Edward Luce says, whatever the calculations, misplaced loyalties, etc., India is at risk of abdicating its respect. Its respect is one of the world's leading democracies. So he's saying India is, is losing respect. This individual, Derek Grossman, says India abstains again. Icky stuff, really icky stuff. So India is icky now, not clean, dirty. Uh, Anne Applebaum says it is shameful that India abstained. And, and somebody else says that in India in particular is going to have to face some extremely tough reprisals from the West. You don't get to do this and then ask for Western support when Pakistan messes in Kashmir or China encroaches on the northern border. This guy says that uh, India and Pakistan should hang their heads in shame and not receive a single penny piece in aid from the UK. As if they are giving us any, any aid, they have stolen trillions of dollars worth of money from us, but they are talking about so-called aid. Alex Wickham says, Western leaders are furious at Modi over his support for Putin. For, for Putin. Jeff Smith says, that we, I can't sympathize with Indian commentators gleefully spouting Russian propaganda and cheering on Putin. You took the wrong pill, comrades. Bruno, the great Bruno says, India fully aligning with Russia. The, the, it's, a, it's a great blemish for the country, for India. Then Bruno says that uh, a question was very simple, but Dr. S. Jayashankar stumbled and mumbled. Uh, I guess we now know that for India, in, uh, territorial integrity is something that applies only to India. So that sort of uh, chatter is going on in the West. And there's a reason for this. They are trying to portray India as a country that is undemocratic. It is a fascist country. And it is a country that, uh, that supports military aggression and a country that supports Russia. It doesn't support democracy. It's an undemocratic, fascist, evil, oppressive, and all that kind of country. That's what that's the impression they are trying to create on social media. What is the reason for that? They are building the justification for not supporting India in the future. In supporting India in what? Supporting India against a future Chinese aggression. The Americans are anticipating that China is going to attack India in some way in the coming future. Not very far future, coming future. See, everyone is everyone believes that the Chinese will try to take Taiwan right now. That's not going to happen. Taiwan is too, too big a problem for them right now. They are not in a position to take Taiwan because the Taiwanese are well prepared and it will be a red line the America, Americans will not allow the, the, the Chinese to cross. So what can China do? China can attack India 
and the Americans are anticipating that and they don't want to get involved in this. They don't want to help India. So right now they are creating the groundwork. They are preparing, the, they are laying the groundwork on social media. They, they are creating the justification for their people, for the citizens. Because see, if China attacks democratic India and the Americans don't help India, it looks bad. Because all, America always talks about democracy, democracy, democracy. And India is the world's biggest democracy. So democracies are supposed to help each other. And if the Americans don't do it, the, the public may not like it. So they are now trying to portray India as an undemocratic, fascist, evil, oppressive, icky kind of country. So that's what we are seeing on social media right now. So it looks like the Americans are anticipating a conflict between India and China soon. So that's what I had tweeted recently. Like, like yesterday, I said that India needs to prepare for a short, sharp 1962-like conflict with China. Could happen before 24 or in 2024. The objective would be to inflict a military defeat on India. To, to break off the Northeast, to, to cut off India's access to its Northeast. And that would cause the current government of Prime Minister Modi to lose the 2024 election. If you if you lose a big piece of territory, the people will vote you out of power, right? And all indications are that the US anticipates this. India must be ready. That's what I said. And in response to that, Velina Chakarova, who has appeared on my podcast in on this channel, she said that she anticipates military tensions between China and India ahead of September 2022 as Xi Jinping is dedicated to solidifying his power and will need the strong support of his military hawks to do that. Taiwan is not an option, so it will likely affect India. So she anticipates some sort of conflict before September this year. I said it will happen before or in 2024. And it looks like the Chinese desire regime change in India. And even the Americans seem to desire regime change in India. Nobody wants a strong, assertive government in India. They want a weak, pliable government in India. And Narendra Modi's government is not a weak and pliable government. So the Americans don't want that. Even the Chinese don't want that. So it's a paradox that the Americans and Chinese both seem to desire a change of government, a change of regime in India. And the best way to do that would, for, would be for China to attack India, break off a part of India's territory, and that would be a humiliation for India like 1962, and the government will lose power in the next elections. So that seems to be what we are witnessing right now. And because of that, to, to prepare the groundwork and the justification for not helping India, we are seeing all of this, this, this big campaign on social media whose objective is to demonize India as an undemocratic, fascist, evil country. That's what we're witnessing. So we need to be prepared. India needs to be prepared for a conflict with China in the short to medium term. Okay, so the, the logical question to that is, will Russia help India if China starts a war? And what's the probability of India defeating China? Vidish says... If there's a war between India and China or India-Pakistan, will the Russians will the Russians support us by any means? Wunsch says, can the Chinese also do the same to us, what Russia is doing with Ukraine? As China supposedly has entered parts of Arunachal Pradesh, can China do the same with us? So 
in the current scenario in the current situation the russians are in no position to help india if there is a conflict between india and china they are not in a position to do that they are not strong enough to do that they are they need the support of the chinese especially the financial support they are trying to create a, a different global order so the world is becoming more and more bipolar right now so they are trying to create a different system and they are trying to break free of the american system so the russians and the chinese need each other's support so if there is a war between india and china the russians are not in a position to help india the question also is that can the chinese do the same to us what russia is doing with ukraine so is india prepared for this eventuality of of uh, a short sharp 1962 like war with china i believe india is very well prepared for that i think it would be really foolish for the chinese to believe that they can indulge in some sort of misadventure with india if they were to do it they would most likely uh, aim for the siliguri corridor the chicken's neck which uh, connects the far east of india which we call which we call the northeast with the so called mainland of india so the chinese may try to aim for that and try to cut that off so can the chinese succeed in that i think it would be really stupid of the chinese to try such a thing because i think india is really well prepared if the chinese do that india can take the fight into chinese occupied tibet territory india can take out all the chinese military bases we have the missiles that can do it our missiles are more or less unstoppable and we can fire salvos of missiles we can even send our fighter aircraft and we have an advantage when it comes to the air force because the chinese air force in tibet is uh, the planes are at a very are stationed at a very high altitude which means they can carry less less fuel and less weaponry whereas our planes can carry much more weaponry and much more fuel so we have a significant advantage there and i think india would anticipate this sort of potential misadventure from, from the chinese so i think india is very well prepared i don't think the chinese would succeed if they try this they may end up losing more than more than they can they would gain right and it could end up essentially humiliating the chinese leadership which which would be a disaster in china the chinese don't tolerate humiliation humiliation in the in a in a military encounter inevitably leads to regime change in china so i think it would be playing with fire with fire if the chinese try that i think india is very well prepared and of course we have certain red lines the chinese will not even dare to to cross because we have the ultimate weapon also so i think india is reasonably well prepared but we must never never uh, be complacent we have to be well prepared at all times especially now when things are changing really fast okay uh, ankit boy says the rule the rule based world order and the international organizations are they all myths of western hegemony under the us events like the nato intervention in the kosovo war iraq invasion and countless other events tell us that western powers bend the rules according to their interests and when somebody else does that these countries and organizations become hyperactive kanchan says please elaborate on all the incidents when where the us invaded other nations in the name of liberation and no international organization questioned their actions good question i have some data here so these are us interventions since the second world war 
from the 1940s all the way into the, into the 2020s. China, Syria, Korea, China, Iran, Guatemala, Tibet, Indonesia, Cuba, Congo, Dominican Republic, Vietnam, so on and so forth. So many interventions. And yet it does not mention here the intervention, the invasion of Yemen, the genocide that's happening in Yemen as we speak. It also doesn't talk about the the US financing of Pakistani terrorism in India for two, three decades. It doesn't, that is also not mentioned here. The Americans financed Pakistani terrorism in India from the 1980s onwards. We know what happened in Kashmir, right? The ethnic cleansing of the Kashmiri Hindus in 1989-1991. So all of that was financed by the Americans. Who else was financing the Pakistanis? They were essentially saying that we are giving money to Pakistan and arms and ammunition to Pakistan to, to end terrorism uh, in Pakistan and to defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan. To defeat terrorists, you don't need to give a nation F-16s and fighter planes, but that's what they did. They always knew that these planes would be used against India and they were fine with that. So the Americans financed Pakistani terrorism in India and so much more. So these are some of the interventions that the Americans have done across the world. So the so-called rules-based world order, it is a fairy tale. It's a myth. When they do it, it's perfectly fine. If somebody else does it, it's a terrible sin and you need to dump sanctions on that country. So that's the thing, right? So when you are the most powerful country in the world, you make the rules and you break the rules whenever you feel and nobody's going to question you. That's how it works. But now, now, things are changing. You can see on even the mainstream media channels, everybody is calling out the hypocrisy and the track record. Okay, next question. Uh, Rajpal says, <laughs> funny, funny, funny. You still believe that, that the US will help Taiwan. The US is, EU is only interested in selling arms. Japan needs to revise their policy. EU should be on alert. Abhijit Singh says, there is no defense treaty between the US and Taiwan. US State Department is officially stated, blah, blah, blah. It will give weapons to Taiwan defending itself. Understand something, my friends. The US cannot afford to lose Taiwan to the Chinese. The US simply can't afford to have that. If the Chinese gain Taiwan, it gives them access to the entire Indo-Pacific. It will be the end of American hegemony in the Indo-Pacific. That's what it means. It is a frontier that the Americans cannot afford to lose. They cannot afford to allow the Chinese to breach that frontier. The island chains, there are two island chains if you look at the map. Uh, let's let's go and look at the map. Uh, one second. Not this, sorry. Not this. I have to bring in the map. Just a second. Here's the map. Let me remove the question so you can see it properly. This is the map. So there are two island chains. So one... So as you can see, the Chinese are encircled at sea. Over here, you have the Japanese. You have the Japanese islands. Uh, if you go down south, you have Okinawa, and so on. Here you have Taip Taiwan, and here you have the Philippines, Indonesia, and so on. So it is encircled by all these islands, and these islands, uh, the forces that are stationed there, are essentially not very friendly to the Chinese. The Japanese are essentially. Uh, they they are in they are under the U.S. 
they there's no nice way of putting it japan is essentially under us occupation right now right it has been that way since the end of the second world war taiwan is a de facto american client state the philippines have traditionally been very much pro us and so on so all of these this entire island chain it encircles china and keeps chinese actions limited to to a certain geographical territory of the of the ocean so if the chinese were to gain taiwan they could they would break free of these shackles and they would be free to uh, to rule if they can the indo pacific region if taiwan falls they would also be free to make their way into the indian ocean and to outnumber the indian army and possibly try to outmatch the indian navy in the indian ocean so taiwan is key to that the americans cannot afford to lose taiwan right so no matter what you say that the americans don't have a treaty or whatever they will simply not allow the chinese to take taiwan it is going to be a disaster for the us it will be the end of america's superpower status if the chinese succeed in conquering taiwan and that's why you will say that the americans have significant amount of uh, of of presence of of forces of strength of weapons and all that in on taiwanese soil so it is still not time it is the, the the chinese are still not in a position to make a move on taiwan and that's why i was saying saying that they could try to make a move on india if they if they feel that they can get away with that okay spar says the removal of certain russian banks from swift shows how the global interdependence can be weaponized by the west does this mean that india should invest more in self reliant sources of fuel like solar wind hydro etc as in the future our dependence on the middle east and others for oil and coal could also be weaponized how else can we hedge risks to our energy security very good question india needs to diversify its uh, sources of energy so by energy by fuel from as many countries as possible diversify your portfolio and as we know even the uae has abstained in in this vote against the russians during the current uh, ongoing crisis so the uae has also abstained so it's not uh, playing per the american playbook and india and the uae have excellent relations so that's one of the sources of our energy security india and saudi arabia also have good very good relations and we should try and acquire other sources of energy as well and like you said we should also try and diversify into solar wind hydro and all that as of today we need hydrocarbons we need fossil fuels you cannot uh, fly a fighter jet based on solar energy right as of today the technology still doesn't exist if you have a navy if you have submarines you can have nuclear submarines for sure but most of the most of your vessels your ships are going to use fossil fuels so and and the entire automobile system and everything in india most of it is based on fossil fuels and that's the, that's the case all around the world right now so as of right now we need to ensure that we diversify our sources of fossil fuels that's what we should do and in the future as more te- as, as technologies evolve and get better we can diversify in other things as well so yes you're right we need to be mindful of this that everything can be weaponized the uh, finance the global financial system can be weaponized the uh uh fuels 
energy can be weaponized, everything can be weaponized, especially when you're one country controlling everything. So India needs to be mindful of that and India needs to diversify as far as it as it can. Nishan says, can UPI replace SWIFT as some countries have started adopting it? And Swastika says, can the SWIFT be replaced by India, India's UPI to counter Western economic hegemony? So what is SWIFT? SWIFT is a means of transferring money from one bank to another, from one country to another. It's essentially a private uh, company, I believe, that charges money for all the transactions that you do. So SWIFT can be replaced. It's not very hard to create a SWIFT-like system in India, in China, in Russia, in some other country. The main problem is to, is to get lots of other countries to adopt this system. That's the main thing. So right now, SWIFT is controlled by the West. When we say West, we essentially mean the US. And that's why they're able to cut off any country that they don't they don't like from the system. So even without SWIFT, the Russians will be able to do financial transactions, but it, it will be an additional hardship because SWIFT makes things very convenient. So India could create its own SWIFT or the Chinese could create their own SWIFT-like system. Or uh, what about the UPI, right? The UPI is not exactly a SWIFT-like system. It's a different kind of system, but you could enhance the UPI system and and, and bring it into the, the, the kind of ability or capabilities that SWIFT has. It's certainly something India can do. The only thing is how many countries can you get to adopt this system? And if you do that, obviously the Americans will not like it because you're trying to create a parallel system. So India has to consider all these things. Right now, we are still not strong enough to stand up to the U to the US. We are still a small $3 trillion economy, right? So India has, has to wait. India has to work hard. India has to bide its time. India has to right now keep its head down, not try and antagonize the big powers and build up its economy to at least a le the level of $10 trillion. So the, the replacement for SWIFT can be created. It's not very hard to do that. Okay, Pragyesh says, as a data scientist, I can claim that creating a web browser environment is probably the most difficult IT task, as it requires huge resources. Given the current scenario of Ukraine-Russia and the way Google and Apple have restricted Russian access, it is imperative that we create our own web browser and search engine as effective as Google. How can we make that happen? Is any government or private organization working on it? As far as I know, Nobody seems to be working on such a thing. You are absolutely right. See, right now, we I hear that Microsoft has announced that it will no longer support, um, uh, that it will no longer support uh, its operations in Russia. So Windows updates will not happen if you are in Russia and if you have a Windows laptop or, or computer and so on and so forth. They're, they're cutting off all, all support. So that could lead to problems, right? And... Uh, so it is it is useful to have your own systems, your, your own infrastructure, your own, like you said, web browser environment, your own search engines and all that. The Chinese have done that. They have their own search engine. They have their own social media. The Russians also have their own search engine. Uh, I don't remember what it's called. They don't have their own social media, but they don't they may not need it or they may be they may be in a position to develop it. So I think in the future, all big countries, all powerful countries, will become more and more mindful of the of the fact that these 
things can be weaponized and all countries will be will start creating their own social media their own search engine and you will find the compartmentalization of the internet coming into the picture the chinese already have it the so called great firewall of china in the future any country that that wishes to remain a sovereign nation may be forced to implement something like that because it's very easy to manufacture public opinion using social media very easy it's very easy to to influence elections in a democratic country from abroad using social media right so it's it's a big problem so i you're right this is very important for india especially if india wants to remain a sovereign nation an independent nation in the in the third decade of the 21st century so india needs to have its own search engine india needs to have i mean there's nobody in india that that manufactures laptops or computers right we are planning to become a big manufacturer of semiconductors and chips it's still something that's just a plan it's not been implemented yet i hope it happens quickly in the next decade so that will make india independent from other countries in that regard in that respect but it is also very important for india to have its own search engines not one multiple and its own social media and all of that maybe its own operating system as well so all of this needs to happen as far as i know i am not aware of any private company or government organization that's doing it but i hope it happens so you have raised a very important point here okay a bunch of questions about the win lose scenarios what happens if what what happens to india if russia wins what happens to india's interests if russia loses right um so what happens in both cases is what all these questions are asking kamleshwar jay krishna singh says what will happen to india's geopolitical perspective if russia wins or loses the war greetings from amsterdam greetings sir and so on so what happens see most likely russia is winning no matter what they say on social media as as i showed you on the maps russia is most likely going to achieve its military objectives in the next 10 days it looks like that so if russia wins it secures its possession of ukraine then the global order changes because uh the the nato will not be able to expand that far and other countries may also be mindful of the power of russia and they may try to try to strike a balance between nato and russia countries like poland and the various baltic republics and so on and so forth so that would place russia in a more powerful position it would also bolster china's geopolitical ambitions right so what does it mean for india see the thing is this let's say russia loses they lose the war in ukraine they are beaten back that sort of thing is terrible mr putin if if that happens mr putin may may lose his presidency also somebody else may come into the picture because russians don't tolerate failure mostly so russia would then become a very weak country crippled by sanctions and so on in that case it's bad for india why is that because india needs russia as a counterweight to china right now the russians and the chinese are cooperating but let me assure you it's not a long term cooperation if you look at the map you will see what i mean where's the map look at russia and look at china 
they have a very long shared border and when you have a shared border and you are both powerful countries that is geopolitical i mean that that is a recipe for geopolitical conflict when you have two powerful nations who have a shared long shared common border there is going to erupt into conflict at some time or the other so in the long run russia and and, and china are geopolitical adversaries right now they are cooperating because it is convenient for them to cooperate so for india it is good to have a more a strong russia a russia that is beaten back a russia that is crippled is not good for india and russia is most likely going to achieve its objectives in that case the chinese will also be bolstered because they are essentially using russia as a mercenary force right now so they are cooperating and coordinating with russia and they want to essentially create a, a, a separate a parallel global system a global system that is going to create a bipolar world one will be the us dominated western world and the other will be the eastern bloc russia and china and whoever else comes with that comes into that that orbit so if russia is stronger if russia succeeds it may actually be good for india it may give india leverage in negotiations for the us also if russia loses then all the leverage is gone so it's a complicated situation but uh, essentially a russian victory in the long run on the geopolitical chessboard may actually be favorable for india if russia loses india loses a lot of its leverage and then india will have to go completely into the us orbit and it may the us may impose lots of conditions on india okay this is an interesting question lingua x deo says didn't chinggis khan have a rules based system are there exceptions you said that he invaded countries only when his own country was wronged did do you know what this is called it's called having principles yes i said that <laughs> however you are correct that most countries do act in the manner that, that you described in the video so it's like this when chinggis khan ruled over half the world he was the superpower the mongol empire was the superpower and while he was alive he ruled in a certain manner he had like you say a rules based system he had principles and he acted according to those principles so he invaded countries only in retaliation only when his own country was wronged and that's the reason why he refused to invade india even when he was on the doorstep of india even though india was the wealthiest country in the world at the time so he had a rule based system very clearly he acted according to those principles today those principles have been dispensed with mongolia is no longer a superpower it's no longer even a small power it's essentially insignificant today half of mongolia is currently occupied by china today the so called rules based system is based on the rules that the americans set and as we know they keep on changing the rules as per their convenience so that's just how it goes the most powerful country the, the the biggest power is going to set the rules when it is somebody who has actual principles the rules are going to be principled and they will be applied uniformly when it is a power that is not that principled you will have a system like the way like the one that you have today when they do it it's fine when somebody else does it they need to be sanctioned so that's just how it goes and that's what we are witnessing
but it's a very interesting question you asked i had not i had not thought of it in that way that chinggis khan had a rules based system but that's exactly what it is so you it's a very interesting observation that you have made agastya said i have heard you say and tweet that power is worth more than money when it comes to geopolitics why is it so and could you explain it in to us in layman's terms yes i have said this multiple times including in the chinggis khan video that power always trumps wealth power always trumps money if you have money then your money can always be taken away by somebody who is powerful but if you are powerful then nobody can take your money away from you and if you are powerful then you can use money to buy more power but if you are just wealthy but not powerful you cannot use that money to buy power so that's how it works so how do i explain this in layman terms so in 1994 i believe there was the so called uh, budapest protocol budapest agreement in the, so, so what happened in during the breakup of the ussr was that ukraine had approximately 3000 ussr nuclear warheads on its territory on ukrainian soil so ukraine became a separate country the ussr was too power, too too weak to prevent the breakup of its uh, of the country so ukraine became a separate country an independent country an independent republic it had 3000 soviet nuclear weapons on its soil and it gave away those nuclear weapons 3000 nuclear weapons to russia in exchange for a guarantee that the russians would ensure that the ussr that ukraine would remain peaceful so in exchange for a guarantee of protection and peace the ukrainians gave away nuclear all their nuclear weapons and this was guaranteed by the, the by the russians by the americans and by nato so there were three guarantors of of ukraine's uh, security in exchange for giving away nuclear weapons now do you know what nuclear weapons represent they represent the ultimate power in the world if you have one nuke one nuclear warhead you are powerful the ukrainians had 3000 nuclear warheads that is an immense amount of power which they had in their hands and they gave it away to the russians imagine if they had even 30 nuclear warheads today would mr putin have dared to invade ukraine that's what it is that is the that that is why power power is more important than money the ukrainians are wealthy they are a resource rich country they are a reasonably wealthy country but that money is not going to save them from the invasion right but if they if they had the power which they gave up then the invasion would never have happened so you may be the wealthiest country in the world like india was throughout its history india accounted for over a third of the entire world's gdp and when india had this powerful empires nobody dared to invade but in the past 1000 years because of political fragmentation india was invaded successfully slowly over time and all the wealth was stolen out stolen out of india so your wealth is of no use unless you are powerful if you unless you have you have the power and you know how to use it <coughs> excuse me so that illustrates the difference between power and wealth and it shows you why power is always more important than wealth 
Okay, uh, Rahul says, what do you think of Vladimir Putin's leadership? He's made out to be the villain among the Westerners, but he's looking at his uh, after his national interests. <coughs> Excuse me. Are they justified to compare him with Hitler, who was a monster? How would you compare Putin's leadership qualities with Zelensky's? See, Mr. Zelensky is by profession an entertainer, an actor and a comedian. You know, the ancient Romans said that entertainers should be kept far away from power entertainers should be kept far away from society they should live separately right uh, so that was the rule that, that the romans had and even vishnu gupta chanakya in the arthashastra i think he mentions that entertainers should be taxed highly and kept separate from society but today in today's world our biggest role models in today's society are entertainers actors and actresses and all that and that's why people like zelensky because of their entertainment ability and acting ability become successful politicians even though they may not have the right kind of leadership ability so putin is not an entertainer he's not a funny guy i mean, I mean sometimes he may be but that's not his primary uh, call to fame so putin is a genuine leader zelensky is just a puppet He's a NATO puppet. He was put in place because he was popular as an, as an entertainer. And that's how it went. So there is no comparison leadership. And today the media is trying to portray Zelensky as a very, very uh, courageous figure wearing military uniform and not giving up and uh, standing strong and uh, giving wonderful speeches even though the Russians are invading. That is just media hype. That is not leadership. Leadership is not quantified in the kind of speeches you give like Barack Obama. Leadership is all about actions, right? So what do I think about Vladimir Putin's leadership? Well, he's doing whatever it takes to, to safeguard and promote his national interest, the, the interest of his nation. And uh, the first principle of leadership, the non-negotiable quality a leader needs to have is that a leader should succeed. A leader has to succeed. A leader must succeed. A country that tolerates leaders who fail is doomed. That's what Indians don't realize. Because in the past 70 years, we have been tolerating leader after leader after leader who have failed. Some of the most idolized so-called leaders in India are failures. I think you can guess at some names. So the number one rule of leadership number one rule of leadership please remember this a leader must succeed a leader must succeed so putin is succeeding and therefore he's a good leader that's sim as simple as that priyanshu says everyone is talking about what this country should do and what that country should do but what about the students and individuals who are all studying in colleges and universities in ukraine all their years of effort and money are in vain because in the present world, degree matters in various fields like medicine, engineering, etc. They all have to start from the beginning. How can the government help these students in terms of education? Yeah, good question. You are right. All those students who have who were in Ukraine, I, they will not be able to continue the education there. And essentially, they have lost whatever the, whatever time they spent in Ukraine. The thing is this. The government is not even duty-bound, according to India's law and constitution, to organize an evacuation effort 
for Indian citizens. But it still did that. It brought, it is trying its best to bring back all of them. The vast majority of them have already been evacuated out of the country, out of Ukraine. And hopefully in the next 24 to 48 hours, those who are left will be taken out to safety. So that's the first thing the Indian government needs to focus on. In the long run, what can we do about those students who lost everything? We need to reform the education system. Right now, what we have is most of the students, I believe, were studying for a medical degree. It, that's what I hear. And right now, we have the scenario of scarcity in the Indian education system. We have so many students who want medical degrees, who need medical degrees, but we don't have enough seats for them in our colleges and universities. So that is one of the problems. I think in the last five years, we have India has increased its capacity in medical seats of by at least 70%. In the next five years, we may double it from what, what it is today. So if we are able to do that, then we will be able to, to absorb the students who are not able to get a seat in a medical college or, or, or course in India and who are forced to go abroad. So that's what we can do. But as of now, what the Indian government can do is to ensure that everybody comes back safe. That's all we can do as of today. Right? And in the long run, we need to reform the education system, which is terrible. India's education system is terrible. I will get into, get into that shortly. Arjun Singh Rawat uh, says, could you please shed some light on Chechnya and the Chechen special forces who are believed to be one of the most brutal and ruthless soldiers in the world? It's a very interesting question. Chechnya. So I could give you a three-hour account of the history of Chechnya, which is very interesting actually. But there, we don't have time for that, so I'll make it brief. Chechnya has an interesting history. Uh, as we know, Chechnya is an Islamic Muslim Republic in Russia. Let, let's see where it is. It's in the Caucasus region. So this here, if you can see my mouse pointer, is the Caspian Sea. And this region here is Chechnya. The capital city is Grozny. All right. So it's in the Caucasus region. It is a Muslim Republic in Russia. Now, if you look at the history of Chechnya, it, it wasn't always Muslim. Uh, the Islamization of this region happened in the, just in the last 200 or 300 years, if I am not mistaken. Not, it's, not been a long, it's not been a long time. So what is Chechnya today? Chechnya, you could consider it to be, it's technically a republic or, or, or an administrative division in Russia. But the, the more accurate way of looking at Chechnya today is to consider it to be a semi-autonomous kingdom. So Chechnya is essentially a semi-autonomous kingdom within Russia. The ruler or the king of Chechnya is uh, Kadyrov. What's his name? Ahmad Kadyrov? No, Ahmad Kadyrov was, was the father. What is his name? I forget. Ramzan Kadyrov. Let me, uh, let me share my screen. So the ruler or the or the king, the de facto king of Chechnya is Ramzan Kadyrov, this gentleman here. So he is absolutely loyal to Vladimir Putin. As you can see, he's facing Mr. Putin here. And in exchange for his absolute loyalty, he is he has been made the de facto king of Chechnya. And he has his own military, his own militia. 
So Chechnya, so if you look at Russia today, the overall uh, growth of the population is actually negative in Russia. So it is below the replacement rate. The total fertility rate in Russia is below the replacement rate. But in Chechnya, the population is actually rising. So the, 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 the rate of births in Chechnya is greater than the rate of deaths. So Chechnya is a great place from where you can get soldiers for the Russian army. And all of these soldiers are part of this private army of Mr. Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the son of Ahmad Kadyrov, who was a former rebel in Chechnya. So Chechnya, Chechnya tried to break free of Russia, became become independent. There were two Chechen wars, one in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin, yeah, and the Russians lost that war. And then a second Chechen war happened under Mr. Putin, and the Russians won. And um, so some of the rebels became pro-Putin, pro-Russia. And uh, Ahmad Kadyrov's son is Mr. Ramzan Kadyrov, who is now the de facto king, you could say. He is completely loyal to Mr. Putin. He has his own army. And his army is is, uh, loyal to Russia. And whenever it is needed, they will go and serve in the Russian army and take part in military operations. And that's what we are seeing right now. So I believe the Chechens have been sent into Ukraine and they will be deployed and sent into battle into into a military operation if they are needed and they have a reputation of being very brutal so that's what i can explain in very brief very interesting uh, part of the world okay saurabh says what is the role of japan in the whole geopolitical world what are the choices of interest for japan the role of japan is not much unfortunately today and let me explain why we have to go back to the map. So Japan is essentially a satellite state, a client state of the United States. I do not regard Japan, unfortunately, as a sovereign country. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I do not regard Japan as a sovereign, independent nation. See, when you when you have a permanent military presence of another country on your soil, you cannot be considered to be a sovereign, independent nation. Let's go to Okinawa, shall we? So this is the island of Okinawa in Japan. Let's let's uh, look at. So as you can see, there are a couple of couple of airports here. Let's look at this one. It's called Ginowan. No, it's called the Marine Corps Air Station Futenma. So this is an American permanent military base. It's a permanent military base, American base. The American Marine Corps is stationed here and their weapons and aircraft and all that will be found here. So these are American aircraft. These are uh, these are helicopters and, and so on. So this is an American base in Japan, permanent st- permanent base. This is another one. This is the Kadena Air Base, a United States Armed Force Base, again. And if you look at the kind of aircraft they have deployed here, these are American fighter planes and so on. Right? And I can show you lots of other American military bases that have a permanent deployment in Japan. U.S. military bases, Japan. Let's see. 
so you will have more you will have many more in the mainland also in the main part of japan us uh let's search for that again as you can see throughout japan so japan essentially can be considered rightfully to be under american occupation so what is the role of japan to do whatever the americans tell them <laughs> that is the role of japan japan has been under american occupation since 1945 since the end of the second world war the japanese constitution was written drafted under american supervision it has not been changed as far as i know since the americans drafted it uh, you ha we had leaders like uh, mr abe mr shinzo abe who were in favor of changing the constitution allowing the japanese armed forces to have a more proactive and significant role but for some reason mr abe had to step down from the prime ministership apparently because of health reasons and now he is long no longer in power now we have a bunch of anonymous prime ministers one after the other who come and go come and go come and go so japan doesn't have much of a role in geopolitics it is a powerful country it has excellent submarines Uh, the chinese are the chinese are scared of the japanese submarines it has an ex ex excellent military uh, sorry industrial base it is the most technologically advanced nation in the world right you could consider japan to be a shadow nuclear power if they want they can have nuclear weapons next week that's how advanced their technology is and that's how advanced their technological capabilities are they also have a very advanced space program very good rockets and all that so they could have nukes next week they could have delivery systems for the new for the nukes next week but they are under us occupation the americans will not allow them to do it unless the americans deem it to be useful for america for the american national interest so that is the role right now of japan in geopolitics not very significant japan is not really a sovereign nation unfortunately Harshit uh, sorry Harsh Zaveri says whose strategy is working effectively NATO with its economic sanctions and freezing of russian assets or russia with its offensive and gas oil related pri price pay what's going to happen who will pin out first according to this it is still to be seen it's too early to say who's going to win uh the russians have opted for a military strategy for a military uh incursion military intervention in ukraine and thus far it's working fine most likely in the next 10 days they will achieve their objectives so from that perspective they are doing well their strategy is working nato has dumped the mother of all sanctions on uh, russia the americans have dumped the entire kitchen sink at russia all the sanctions you can imagine they've thrown at them so essentially it it gives russia nothing more to lose so what the americans have done believe it or not is they have pushed russia into the chinese arms the russia the americans by doing all this have precipitated the bipolarization of the world the chinese and the russians will now go ahead and try to create a separate international system right and they may even want who knows india to be part of the system so if the russians succeed in what they are doing then 
it may give more leverage to india in negotiating with the us if it has an offer of joining this parallel system but india obviously needs to be very careful because china is always a threat so that's where we are right now so the americans what they have done it looks like it's been very counterproductive it's going to precipitate the bipolarization of the world it's going to show the world that american hegemony no longer works all the time they were not able to prevent the russians from taking over ukraine ukraine was supposed to be in the american orbit the next nato member state and see what happened they could not save ukraine what about you next can they save you so that's what we are seeing so we are witnessing the slow decline of american power so i would say that in the long run it looks like the american empire is now in decline and an eastern front may be in the ascendancy but we it still remains to be seen see no power will decline without a fight especially when you are becoming weaker you will lash out more aggressively so that's why the next decade is going to be a decade possibly of great chaos the russians may now try to bring iran into their fold the iranians have been crippled by american sanctions for the past god knows how many years right they the americans walked back from the iran nuclear deal unilaterally after signing the agreement in an international agreement they backstabbed iran so the iranians are will be very happy to go into the eastern bloc with the russians and the chinese the pakistanis are already under the chinese uh, chinese umbrella so you could see a very rapid bipolarization of the world and then it will be up to india to decide what it wants to do what is best for india's national interest in the long run so that's what we are witnessing right now the world is in flux uh nepal oh hello okay let me read this out then i will remove this so uh the first question is yes abhijit this is the best way to repay all the gurkha soldiers who have sacrificed their lives for india they have fought two wars before retirement and you thank them for the service by invading their homeland and swadesh karki says i am from nepal currently in the us it's a long a uh, long uh, couple of paragraphs what he is saying is that in nepal there are very limited people who understand all this and their minds have been completely brainwashed and, uh, and so on yes okay so i had said in one of the last in one of last week's uh, live streams that in case china invades taiwan india needs to secure nepal and sri lanka that's what i had said and it looks like many people have interpreted this as me trying to say that india needs to invade and occupy nepal see let's understand the india nepal relationship uh, this uh, gentleman uh, mentioned the gurkha soldiers let's understand the india nepal relationship it is a privileged relationship india and nepal have an open border indians don't need a visa to go to nepal nepalese people don't need a visa to come to india the border is open you can just walk in and walk out the citizens of nepal have the right to come to india work in india and live in india as long as they want their whole life if they want they have the right to do this they have the privilege of doing this and the citizens of uh, citizens of nepal have the privilege have the right to serve in the indian armed forces in the indian 
army to in the defense of india there is a privilege that only the citizens of nepal have citizens of any other country don't have any of these privileges we don't have an open border with pakistan afghanistan afghanistan is out of, out of the question temporarily we don't have an open border with pakistan with uh, with bangladesh bangladesh burma sri lanka anything only the nepalese citizens have these rights and privileges and, and vice versa it works both ways so it's a privileged relationship we have an open border right and so i will be perfectly happy if nepal remains an independent country in this manner for the rest of eternity i said india needs to secure nepal's territorial integrity because we know what the chinese have been doing they have taken over the whole of tibet they are biting at arunachal they are they are taking bites out of bhutan they are taking bites out of all of their neighbors they will in the case of a conflict with india try to use nepalese territory to to make incursions into india they will not respect nepal's territorial integrity or sovereignty and like the other gentleman said nepalese have been brainwashed today right and the roots of that lie in the regime change that was done in the 1990s when the maoists came to power and the nepalese monarchy was destroyed right and after the maoists came to power the entire brainwashing of of youngsters started and today it looks like lots of nepalese have a very strong anti india sentiment let me tell something t- tell you guys something my nepalese friends in case you are watching we are the same people the nepalese are the descendants of lord ram lord krishna right and so are the indians i mean i i believe that uh, one of the previous nepalese prime ministers even tried to claim that lord ram was born in nepal and so on so we are the same people indians are the descendants of the mauryans so are the nepalese we are the same people we have an open border let it remain the way it is india doesn't have any uh, ambitions to take away nepal sovereignty i think nepal has done very well it has in some ways been able to preserve its culture better than india i think it would be best if india doesn't dump socialism and secularism on, on nepal right so india needs to secure nepal's territorial integrity and sovereignty in case of any chinese misadventure that's all I, all i was saying and the same goes for sri lanka indians like to talk about these days about akhand bharat akhand bharat doesn't need to be a single monolithic empire it can be a confederation of allied states who all share the same culture and civilization it doesn't mean that they have to be under one single political dispensation right so we can have a united states of akhand bharat with a number of independent sovereign states within them but who all share the same culture and civilization in the long run not today tomorrow next week so please understand that i do not have any i am not recommending that india should invade nepal and take away nepal sovereignty nepal is doing very well on its own and we have an excellent open privileged relationship with nepal why can't it continue the same way if tibet had been independent we would have had most likely a similar kind of relationship with tibet as well with open borders and so on and so forth maybe when the world is a better place we can have that too but please understand my nepalese friends we have no ambitions of taking over nepal we just want nepal to to stay secure and sovereign and independent and please understand this china is not your friend 
China is not the friend of the Nepalese people or the Nepalese nation. It's not. Okay, let's take one more question. Education. Clear warning, very demonic. Our education system is garbage. Mind your language, brother. And uh, the other person is saying, we, our country has the most intellectuals in the world. And, uh, and we have, we are building UAE. We have sewage workers and IT field and all that. So never bring down your motherland in your heart, even on, especially on an open platform. Do correct your viewpoint. And there's more. Indian education system is not garbage. Don't speak irresponsibly. Please don't say it is garbage. Our education system is on par with the global system. And Janavi says, please don't comment on anything you're not sure of. Please get you get your facts right. Your comments are not ridiculing the education system is not in good taste and so on and so forth. So that's what uh, many people are saying. Because last week I had said that India's education system is garbage. Maybe I used a very strong term, but I stand by what I said. India's education system is one of the worst in the world. You all, my dear friends, I don't blame you for feeling this way. But please realize that the education system is not serving you. Let me let me show you. Okay, so let me tell you what's wrong with the education system. There is extremely poor quality of faculty and teachers. Do you realize that? There is a lot of politics in the education system. You have reservations. You have incompetence in the, st in the, in the staff, in the teachers. The education system prioritizes the staff over the students. There is a commercialization of the education system. Degrees are a commodity to be sold these days. You are forced to memorize things, not to understand anything. You don't know what is right or wrong, what is good or bad. You're not taught these things. You are not allowed to question the teacher. You are forced to be in, under a state of absolute obedience. The education system tells you what to think, not how to think. It educates you just enough to believe what they teach you, but not enough for you to question what they teach you. Do you know that the basic qualification required for a clerk is the same as the basic edu education required for an IS officer? Graduation. The degrees are worthless. The education is in a foreign language. It's creating cyber coolies. You have this artificial scarcity. L more students, less seats. India is spending billions of dollars in foreign exchange to, to send its students to other countries to educate them. And you know what's the funny thing? When Indian students go to foreign countries to get an education, they mostly study under Indian professors who are working there. Do you understand how terribly broken the education system is? So India's education system is terrible whether you realize it or not. Please don't react emotionally when you come across information that you don't expect or you don't agree with. Try and understand what the person is trying to say. And if you are truly, if you're truly interested in understanding what is wrong with the education system, then I can, I can uh, give you a pointer. I'll give you a recommendation. Uh, just one second, let me, sh let me share my screen. So if you are truly interested in knowing what is wrong with the education system, watch episode 30. Ask Abhijit episode 30 on this channel. It is available on this channel. Please watch, watch this episode if you are truly interested in understanding what, is, what are the problems and what is what are the solutions that we need to implement in the Indian education system. So that is what I will leave you with. Uh, we have crossed the two hour mark. So let us end this session for today.
so thank you everybody for watching and once again let me before i end uh, remind you that i have created a separate new channel short clips channel the link is in the description uh, go to the description and the link is also here it is youtube.com/abhijitchavdaclips in case you want to watch short clips of each individual answer instead of watching a two hour long session which i would be which i would perfectly understand why then please subscribe to this channel all right everybody thank you very much for very interesting questions tomorrow i will take more questions tomorrow i will do i will take some questions from video chat as well so i look forward to seeing you tomorrow until then take care thank you very much bye